I was in Detroit several times. Each time I met both Mr. Ford and his son, Edsel. And uh, I remember there was quite a gap between my two last visits to Detroit. And I didn't think that Henry Ford would know who I am no more than anything else. But however, I was taken into Mr. Ford's office by Charlie Sorensen, his top man. And Mr. Sorensen said, after shaking hands with Mr. Ford, he said, do you know this man I've got here? And he looked up and he said, oh, hello, Ireland, how are you? <laughs> I, thought, I was rather amused. But um, he was very kind, nice man to handle and deal with. Very simple in his ways. Very simple in his ways. A memory of Henry Ford, from the man who was the first Native Irish Managing Director of Henry Ford and Son Limited Cork, E.L. Clark. Eugene Leonard Clark was born in Finnad, Eastkey, County Sligo, in January of 1891. Now in his 92nd year, his memories of Henry Ford and of the founding of the Ford plant in Cork are quite vivid and provide a fascinating backdrop to an important stage in our industrial history. This is E.L. Clark's story. My earliest memories are in my early teenage when I <coughs> helped with the usual ag- agricultural operations on uh, our little farm down in uh, County Sligo. And uh, I went to school until I was um, about 17 because the teacher was good enough to get a few of us in for special lessons, uh, evenings and so forth, and I availed of that as much as possible. I got an interest at the time in writing shorthand by having met some of the Western people, high-grade reporters which they had in those days, One I can name, Jack O'Reilly, famous newspaper reporter. And one time in Eastgate, he was uh, reporting a meeting and uh, was unable to wait for the finish of the um, Member of Parliament's complete speech. He knew I wrote shorthand and he requested me, would I report the rest of the speech? I... um, uh, did the job for Mr. O'Reilly, and uh, it kept me interested. And I became very good at shorthand. And uh, I was getting then on to uh, my late teens, and uh, I felt I should go for some job, like clerical work possibly, as we had enough labour on the farm that the f- my father, R.I.P., could... Uh, let the elders go along and make his own way if he could. I soon crossed over to Great Britain to seek work and I was able to uh, secure a job in the London General Omnibus Company which was then located near Westminster. And being so near to Westminster, I was able to avail very often of attending the House of Commons in the Strangers' Gallery through the goodness of the County Sligo Member of Parliament who sent me uh, entrance tickets whenever I required them. 
So I had the experience of listening to people in the House of Commons, like John Redmond, Lloyd George, Birkenhead, and many others whose names I just can't recall at the moment, but all well-known in history, whether well-liked or not is another matter. The House of Commons debates of those days held particular interest for a young Irishman, as much of the debate was taken up with the Home Rule Bill. Well, during those visits to the House of Commons, I did attend some meetings there where the Home Rule Bill was debated. And I, and I really thought, as a youngster, that was a good thing. And uh, that was nobody really against it. And that would be a good thing for Ireland, and that it would come. And these men, now like the MP for Sligo, Scanlon was his name, he was a barrister actually working in Glasgow. Uh, Tom Scanlon. He was the uh, the MP for Sligo, and I'm sure my poor father would have voted for him. Well, they were fine men, and I went to meetings over there. I was at a meeting of John Redmond's in Hackney, London, and I think he was the greatest Irishman of all. Or I don't know whether he's better than Parnell, I can't tell that, because Parnell was gone. But he was a wonderful Irishman with John Redmond. I went to a meeting there, I met himself and his wife and had a handshake with them. Who else did I meet? Uh, oh, I, did, I went to another meeting over there about home rule by the, I think it was known as the Irish Protestant Home Rule League. A long name like that. And they're holding a meeting to further the cause of home rule. And at that meeting spoke George Bernard Shaw. Um, Mrs. Stopford Green, the historian, Conan Doyle, and um, a lawyer from Skibbereen. They were at this meeting. I, th I think it was a very interesting meeting, as a matter of fact, to have that sort of combination of people. And Shaw made a wonderful speech there. And he described how he... what how he was brought up and his young days. And he explained how uh, his nurse, he was lucky enough to have a nurse, sprinkled holy water on him every night. And he says, now look at the result. That's all he said. <laughs> I think it was very funny. <laughs> but that is George Bernard Shaw. But there, there were many... Um, Irish meetings being held in London in those days. And uh, I think home rule is very near. But this World War I, you see, like all these wars, they come in and interrupt the good work. And I think that spoiled home rule. Because a new generation of politicians then came in. Oh, Lloyd George was in favour of home rule, you see, and many others. Apart from the First World War, of course, events in Ireland were soon to put an end to plans for home rule. The 1916 rebellion changed not only the course of Irish history, but the course of E.L. Clark's personal history too. However, I, um, at the same time, started to go to evening classes and uh, completed courses in commerce, accountancy and similar subjects. Um, to the extent that the college that I was attending had finally asked me would I come onto his staff. I took the job 
um, Cusack's College, run by an Irishman, as a matter of fact, a very successful commercial school. And uh, that carried on for a period until I got a little bit homesick, poor chap. And I came across to Ireland and I took up a job in Dublin at Skerry's College in Stevens Green and Harcourt Street. I enjoyed it. Uh, during this period, I got a holiday at Easter of that particular year and uh, went off for the weekend to visit my girlfriend then in Bantry. This was the, the, the fatal week of Easter week for many people and I didn't know this while we were enjoying ourselves going round the beautiful Cork area on our bicycles until it became time to return to Dublin. But I was told by the station master, sorry, no train, there's some serious trouble in Dublin. So I stayed put with my friends until the trouble blew over and I started to return to Dublin. But I broke my journey in the great city of Cork and found that the college I was working in had some of their staff missing from the Cork school and he offered me work for the time being, which I accepted. But before long, I got into uh, another business in Cork as an accountant, which uh, I enjoyed for the short time I stayed. But in some way or other, through rumour or otherwise, I became aware that uh, the great Ford Company in Detroit, United States, were uh, just arranging to purchase a very big property in the city which was the really the Cork race course, one of the best race courses ever in Ireland, but uh, it passed over to a commercial firm. No doubt a lot of racing people and sportsmen were sorry to see it depart from its usual uh, successful meetings but uh, the commercial company succeeded in the end in having the property transferred to themselves, although it did actually involve uh, a limited appeal to the House of Commons in England, whereby it was possible to pass the property to somebody outside the country. So Ford's bought the property. And... Um, it was just a large green field with some jumps, of course, and one or two small cottages where the hurling teams used to keep their gear. And uh, the rest was a very long uh, riverside frontage to the property, which covered about 150 acres. In 1926, Henry Ford explained why he had decided to set up a plant in Cork. We chose Ireland for a plant because we wanted to start Ireland along the road to industry. 
Well, there was, it was true, some personal sentiment in it. My ancestors came from near Cork, and that city, with its wonderful harbour, has an abundance of fine industrial sites. Cork has for many years been a city of casual labour and extreme poverty. Oh, there are breweries and distilleries, but no real industry. The best that a man could hope for was two or three days a week on the docks, for which he would receive sixty shillings or fifteen dollars for the hardest kind of stevedoring. We started our plant with three men from Detroit to direct operations. Now we have under employment about eighteen hundred men. They work eight hours a day, five days a week, steady. The minimum wage is two shillings and three pence an hour, or a sovereign a day, five pounds a week. This is steady money, week in and week out, something that few, if any, of the men had ever known before. Eighteen hundred men on the payroll in 1926, a rapid increase from the very small beginnings of 1917. Anyhow, it sounded very good to me, and uh, I thought it wise to make an application for work. And uh, although they hadn't actually started work and had no office except a room in the Imperial Hotel. So I applied for the job and it happened that my experience, which I had, was just the right thing for them. They were going to start the company and they were going to start up the usual framework of accountancy work and purchasing work and all the other gear that goes with large companies. I got the uh, uh, job to, do it, to set up the, accountants, the accountancy system, which was based actually on the American system. But it went through satisfactorily. And I should have mentioned that I was the second employee of the company in Cork. The poor man who was number one has passed away and he was a very well-known engineer. And he did a lot of engineering work for the company and finally went to a rather high government job in Dublin. He was number one, I was number two, but there were soon were numbers three and four and five and so on, so that in a matter of days, we had about 300 men on the payroll. That was part of my job, to make up the payrolls, draw the cash through walking up town from, up the, from uh, the Victoria Quay up to the bank in South Malcock, draw the money, pay the men, that was that. And that went on for uh, some years. We put up the initial buildings, all designed by this good man who came from Detroit, Raymond Brown. He was a construction engineer, and uh, he was my boss. And I was his secretary, and I did all their accountancy work and uh, a, a good deal of the purchasing work. After a time, Mr. Brown had to leave because of a, a, a new job that they were giving him in Japan, where he went to erect some earthquake-free or safe uh, buildings. 
And in those early days, to be second in command in a Ford motor plant didn't necessarily qualify you for a company car. In, in those early days, I mentioned that I had to walk up to, uh, to the South Mall for the men's wages. That is correct. I had to do that and bring it back and pay the men because we had only one car in the company. And that was used by Mr. Brown, who lived in Rochestown while he was in Cork. And, of course, if there's any serious business to be done, well, he'd loan the car to somebody else, or I'd get it myself from him. But uh, cars were very scarce in those days, because the World War, the First World War, was in full flight. And uh, there were no um, baby Fords or or, (laughs) Model T's or anything else available for purchase by the ordinary people. Well, that went on for about two years. We had mostly construction work to do, and we put up some of the best uh, factory buildings, I suppose, that Mr. Ford ever had in Cork, all done by local labour, and our own engineers, the man I first mentioned, he was one of them, they designed the buildings, and the work was done by our own men, no outside help whatsoever, and we had some excellent craftsmen and workers that couldn't be better. They are most adaptable, hard-working people. Um, that was 1917 and 1918. In the meantime, uh, the Ford Company in America were expanding themselves, and designing and building new models, etc. One important change which came in the company was the fact that Mr. Henry Ford, he was a a devoted agriculturist as well as an engineer and a designer and an inventor. But he didn't like the idea of having all the tillage work done on the land with horses because it was very heavy for the men operating, and it was slow. And he conceived the idea of designing what was to be called a tractor. I felt perfectly certain that horses, considering all the bother of attending them and the expense of feeding, did not earn their keep. The obvious thing to do was to design and build a steam engine that would be light enough to run an ordinary wagon or to pull a plow. I thought it more important first to develop the tractor, to lift farm drudgery off flesh and blood and lay it on steel and motors has been my most constant ambition. And Henry Ford's ambition was eventually realized with the manufacture of the Fordson tractor. The dawn of a new era for the farmer. Fordson, the universal farm tractor. The Fordson tractor means to the farmer what the Ford motor car has been to the civilized world. It is the simplest of all tractors to work, the easiest to maintain, and the most satisfactory of all power machines. The Fordson will displace three or four horses on the farm and will plow your three-horse land up to an acre per hour. If you have land to plow, we will do it for you and thus demonstrate for you this claim. 
the Ford Company in Detroit uh, seemed to be very pleased that they had started this new development as it affected the whole wide world trade, tractors used on the land, which was completely new to the whole, all the populations. And they carried on with the manufacture of this tractor and sold as many as they could in Detroit. But Mr. Ford also decided that this was a very useful um, article of commerce to, do, to use in his new factory at Cork for the purpose of having those built in Cork distributed in the European or other nearby areas. The work in Cork went along very steadily as regards the, the building of new extensions uh, in preparation for the building of the tractor. And uh, the time had come when the matter of uh, food supplies was of the greatest urgency for Great Britain, who were involved with the Great War with Germany. And uh, food was uh, getting very scarce and hard to produce. And the government under Lloyd George had decided that they should get something, if possible, of a mechanical nature to do the work more quickly. And he made a special appeal to Mr. Ford at Detroit if he could make a special range as big as possible for shipment to Great Britain and Ireland. And the result of that negotiation was that Mr. Ford agreed to make 6,000 tractors and furthermore to sell them to Great Britain at cost price. The cost price in those days, if my memory is not failing me, was £150 each, which was all Mr. Ford asked for the tractors, and he was paid that. They did help in the manufacture of food, and a small number were sent to Ireland. There were some in County Cork, not a great number because they weren't available. England, they didn't have the horses either, you see, and it was a blessing to them to fall back on the tractor. It is not generally known that our tractor, which we call the Fordson, was put into production about a year before we had intended because of the Allies' wartime food emergency and that all of our early production, well, aside, of course, from the trial and experimental machines, went directly to England. We sent in all 5,000 tractors across the sea in the critical 1917-18 period when the submarines were busiest. Every one of them arrived safely, and officers of the British government have been good enough to say that without their aid England could scarcely have met its food crisis. It was these tractors, run mostly by women, that ploughed up the old estates and golf courses and let all England be planted and cultivated without taking away from the fighting manpower or crippling the forces in the munition factories. With the ending of the Great War, the demand for tractors slowed up and the cork plant switched to the manufacture of all the engines and rear axles of motor cars for the English market. These were sent out by ship from Cork to Manchester, up the ship canal to Manchester. And all of the Ford cars built over those years had engines built 
in Cork. They're well known now to everybody as the old Model T, which was the father of all the motor cars, I think. I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be large enough for the family, but small enough for the individual to run and care for. It will be constructed of the best materials by the best men to be hired after the simplest designs that modern engineering can devise. But it will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one and enjoy with his family the blessing of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. During those early years, I had meetings, very interesting meetings, with Mr. Henry Ford, the senior, the father of the lot, himself, and also of his son, Edsel, who died rather a short time after. And I also met then as a schoolboy the present Henry Ford, who is uh, well known in most countries at present. I had visits to Mr. Ford's office, no very long engagements, because he was a really busy man. And he came to his office and factory every day and if he went out for a ride on Sunday, he very often just drove through the factory. It was huge, of course, running into many acres, probably hundreds of acres. I also met uh, Mr. Edsel, that was his son, but he never had the pleasure of coming to Ireland as he had hoped. But they were, they were consistently interested in the doings of the cork factory. It was new, it was the first factory uh, built by the company in their own name, outside of America. And in fact, I think it's the only company now in the Ford Group which still carries the full name of Henry Ford and Son, which I think is a great honour to Ford, that uh, he had so remembered his, uh, his antecedents in Cork. Because I maybe I should have told you that... Uh, he was, uh, he was not an Irishman, but he was the son of an Irishman, William Ford, who, with his family, wife and children and some other outer members, I think, of the family, emigrated from Cork, travelling by road from Balnascarthy, County Cork, to some ship they were able to avail of in Cork. And that was the beginning of the Ford move to America. They didn't settle down in the eastern states, they went west, and he was uh, Henry, uh, the, the, uh, Henry number one, I'll call him. He was born on this 40-acre farm outside Detroit. He loved farming, and of course he added tremendously to it in time, and I don't know how many thousand acres he owned eventually, but there are many. But he was highly interested in them. And he was also interested in hearing accounts of farming activities in Ireland because he was wondering how Ireland was going. He seemed to have been very fond of Ireland, very fond. I have seen 
the home from which, or at least the ruins of the home, from which is, uh, the Ford family emigrated. It's in Balniscarthy. And some years ago, probably now 20 or 30 years ago, I saw that for the last time I was down in that part of the country and it was just uh, in a fallen down condition. Um, at one time it was hoped to become his property, but I don't think it was possible to make the arrangements for some technical reasons possibly. He didn't need a home in Ireland now. He had a good home wherever he went. Incidentally, I should uh, mention maybe here that um, he had a lovely home which he called Fair Lane. He called his home Fair Lane. It's not generally known that that had any connection with Ireland, but it has, because I got that from himself. Fair Lane used to be a very important street in the city of Cork. I don't think it's any longer there. They've joined it up, integrated with another street or something like that, I think, because I did make an effort to try and get the signboard Fair Lane, and I failed. Somebody must have pulled it down and lost it because I, I was anxious to get it. Fair Lane. And the Fair Lane came from the name of one Irish lady who was connected with the family and had taken a very important part in the raising of his family when in his young days. And she came from Fair Lane, Cork. And it's one of the places he asked me about, Fair Lane. I didn't know it. And I had to, uh, to offer that excuse. I really didn't, and it isn't there today. But however, he, he had that fondness for Ireland, you see. It was very difficult to get it out because the man being so busy, naturally. You couldn't imagine being able to give very much time to any subject, really. But he did have that always in his mind, fairly. And so much so that he had a private train, which he used travelling all over America whenever he wanted to, by himself and his staff. And that train was the Fair Lane. And he also gave the same name to one of the best cars he ever built in Detroit, Fair Lane, a rather biggish car. Almost, uh, well, probably better than the Rolls Royce. A big car like that. And to the Fair Lane from Fair Lane, Cork. From his many meetings with Henry Ford in Detroit, the picture that E.L. Clark builds up of Ford is that of a very hard-working man, totally absorbed in his cars and in things mechanical, but at heart a very simple man. Very simple in his ways. And talk business. He talked business about what do you think of such and such a car or the style of it and all that sort of thing. He liked to hear people's opinions, although he didn't change his decisions very easily. It had to be a strong person in your views to convince him that he wasn't doing right. (laughs) He felt he always was. As a matter of fact, the fact that he made 15 million cars so early in his life, well, he still... below middle age, 15 millions. And um, I was in Detroit several times. Each time I met both Mr. Ford and his son, Edsel. And uh, I remember there was quite a gap between my two last visits to Detroit. And I didn't think that Henry Ford would know who I am no more than anything else. 
But, however, I was taken into Mr. Ford's office by Charlie Sorensen, his top man. And Mr. Sorensen said, after shaking hands with Mr. Ford, he said, do you know this man I've got here? And he looked up and he said, oh, hello, Ireland, how are you? I I was rather amused. But um, he was a very kind, nice man to handle and deal with. Very simple in his ways. Very simple in his ways. And devoted to his work. And, um, I mean, when designs were changed and everything like that, he fully went into them. And he had a, a, a sort of inborn uh, knowledge of mecha- everything mechanically. How it works and how it feels and everything like that. He, he was a wonderful man on design. He just seemed to be able to work a picture in his mind of the most complicated things and solve them. Driving to town, I always had a pocket full of trinkets, nuts, washers, and odds and ends of machinery. Often I took a broken watch and tried to put it together. When I was 13, I managed for the first time to put a watch together so that it would keep time. By the time I was 15, I could do almost anything in watch repairing, although my tools were of the crudest. There's an immense amount to be learned simply by tinkering with things. It's not possible to learn from books how everything is made, and a real mechanic ought to know how nearly everything is made. Machines are to a mechanic what books are to a writer. He gets ideas from them, and if he has any brains, he will apply those ideas. In 1926, E.L. Clark became managing director of Henry Ford and Son Cork, the first Irish-born boss of Ford's, after a succession of American bosses. The first was Bernard Raymond Brown, and then there's Jack Crawford in 1918, who got um, that terrible uh, flu that was going that year, and he very nearly died, and he didn't feel able to continue. And he went back, and then it was Ed Grace came, who was a wonderful man, wonderful man, and I followed him. And he trained me. We had a swap, as a matter of fact. He asked me to teach him all I knew about accountancy. And he said, I'll teach you all I know about engineering. So there you, <laughs> you had a half engineer and a half accountant. But anyhow, we, we ran it well. We had no problems. We had no problems there. Everything went very smoothly, I must say, in Cork. And I think Cork was lucky to get a firm like that in. And I'm very glad to see that it's continuing year after year, giving good service and good employment. But I will add that the, the Cork people gave Ford good service and loyalty, which is important. They're very loyal to Ford. But um, Ford did a lot for them. As a matter of fact, he came there in 1917. And really there wasn't much in the way of engineering. There was no requirement for it up to that date. But once Ford started and taught people to do these engineering jobs, I mean they picked it up quicker than they could in school because they saw the thing being made under their own eyes. And it did an awful lot of good for Cork. As E.L. Clark pointed out, there was little or no tradition of engineering in Cork in those early days. So the system of training was very much a system of apprenticeship. Yes, all the Cork 
his staff were trained one by the other. When a man, new man came in, he was trained by his uh, earlier arrival. And uh, I always found there was great uh, loyalty amongst the Cork staff in helping and teaching one another, and they worked very well together. We never had any disputes or any trouble of any kind there. They worked very hard indeed, and we were always able to tell them if they weren't doing as good as they were in Detroit. Because one of the uh, things we, uh, we used to do in Fords is every part that's made in the factory is made under several operations. It may be 20 operations in grinding and pressing and drilling holes and all the other operations, but we know exactly what is the time expended on each of those operations. Add them together and you've got the labour cost of that particular part. All right. These were very handy when they came to Cork because we could tell the lads in Cork, look, boy, you were about 50% higher than they're doing in Detroit. In fact, the only thing that I know now that is doing any similar work is this, what do you call it, ANCO. We'd never, there was nothing like that in those days. And the workers in Fords of Cork could teach their fellow countrymen a thing or two about football as well. Their soccer team, Fordsons, made history in 1926 when they brought the Free State Cup to Cork for the first time by beating Shamrock Rovers 3-2 in an epic final. For E.L. Clark, his six years as managing director of Fords were exciting ones, years of diversification and expansion. During the years uh, 1926, 27, 28 and up to 30, uh, there were very big developments at uh, Cork because we were given the job of undertaking the manufacture. That's the manufacture from raw materials, not a matter of assembly, from the raw material. And we had to buy these raw materials. We imported our coal and coke from England and uh, we imported the steel from Sheffield and places like that. And we converted all those parts to genuine Ford parts, which were built into the engines, which I mentioned already, that were uh, exported to um, Manchester for the assembly of the car. And uh, we also had to run side by side with that the manufacture of an, a reintroduced tractor. Mr. Ford had given up tractor manufacture in the States for one year, possibly because he had in his mind to design a better model. And during that period, we continued to build the original design until such time as the new tractor was out. And these tractors were exported from Cork to every country in Europe. We even exported some to the United States and quite a few to Russia. They were all within our, our... and I have often seen as many as five ships uh, tied up at the docks, loading and unloading goods. And when that um, development in the tractor production took part originally, we procured from Detroit the whole range of equipment that was used in machining and making those parts. And it took five large ships, large steamers, to transfer all that machinery 
from their own dock at Dearborn, Michigan, at Detroit, all the way down the St. Lawrence and across the Atlantic. And they were brought in and unloaded in Cork. Five ships within a matter of some weeks, which we in turn had to install and train the particular men and get going on it. During part of that time, we had uh, employed between five and 6,000 men. But they tapered off, of course, when this big factory started in Dagenham. They tapered off. But the company were good enough to give every, give every man a job. And some of the best men they ever got in Dagenham factory were the fellows trained in Cork. Um, the great, uh, we had a great foundry in Cork. A wonderful foundry. We had five cupolas melting iron. We could melt up to 150 tons of metal in the day. And we had wonderful um, core makers and uh, men of the various operations required in a foundry. I think, well, we, it was considered one of the most modern foundries in Europe. And we had foundry managers come from, not only from England, but from other European companies to see the methods adopted by Ford because they were, they were a, a repeat of what was happening in, in the United States. So it was a case of Cork teaching the world about engineering, even teaching the Russians. Well, Mr Ford, uh, he was very liberal with his knowledge. I remember around the same time that uh, when Russia, of course, was in a lot of trouble internationally and that sort of thing, Mr Ford got the idea, I suppose he was right, that uh, if they had plenty of food, they'd have work as well. And he was very uh, keen on supplying Russia with any demands that they needed on machinery or advice on uh, manufacturing methods. And he sent some of the best men he had right over to Russia to teach them some of the things. There's one man, he's uh, in my mind now as I speak, uh, Pete McGregor, a Scotsman, who was one of the best foundry men they had in the States, and he was in Cork for a time too, to help our chaps. But he was sent to Russia to help them design their foundries there. And he himself told me, because he called on me on his way back from Russia months later, he told me that he had met Joe Stalin. And his uh, little report on Joe Stalin was that Joe would walk in in the morning when, when uh, uh, Mr. McGregor was giving instructions and laying down plans uh, for the men. And he'd clap McGregor on the back and say, Hello, Shirley, how are you? So looking back to 65 years ago, when from an initial staff of two, the Cork workforce grew to 5,000 by 1930, what is E.L. Clark's abiding impression of those years of growth? I suppose the great thing is to really understand how well Cork integrated itself into that sort of a production movement of engineering and assembling at the best and highest standards. See, that's a long way back. So that was in the early days of engineering. I think I mentioned that we had only one car when we started. And I remember, as a matter of fact, after that, when we were probably complaining that we had no car to do our business, and we appealed by uh, K 
cable to Detroit about this, and they sent two cars. And we only had them a week or two here when they said, you have to send one of those to Germany. Germany was so short a car, they had to take one of the two we had. So we had to get to business on the bicycle or tram or whatever it was. Trams, I think, in those days. And finally, in the light of Henry Ford's much-quoted remark that history is bunk, it's surely an irony that E.L. Clark only came to work for Ford through a twist of historic fate, being stranded in Cork because of the Easter Rising of 1916. In fact, strange to say, I've got the return ticket still at home. 